Romans chapter 8, we'll start with verse 34. I don't think we have any announcements. That's remarkable. Brian Reed, did you have any announcements? No, I know you don't want to open in prayer, but you don't have any announcements. <laughs> well, I do have a, um, I shouldn't do this, but I might let the cat out of the bag now that Mike's here. But you may be expecting Tetelestai, Tetelestai Church. You may be expecting some visitors that will include Mars and Julie Ferwerda in the next, sometime before the fall. That's not, that's soon. So, pray that things are well ordered in that direction. Romans chapter 8, and verse 34. Tonight I'm going to be doing, my whole message will be a wrap. So, in preparation for Mars. So. I actually did write one, but somebody else have. Can anybody rap here? Brian Reed, can you rap? <laughs> no, you, you knew I was going to do that. Um, I did write one, but somebody else have to perform it. Really, you can ask Emery. He, he, he'll tell you. Let's, let's pray and get out of this. Father, we thank you for this opportunity tonight, and we always expect you to exceed our expectations. And so we present ourselves to you and entrust our spirit to you and our capacity to understand to you that you may expand that capacity and that we may lay hold with all the saints of the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ and May we come to be persuaded of our inseparability from that love, even as we are enrolled in Adversity University. Thank you for this opportunity. We truly appreciate your constant grace, your patient kindness, and your Son, our Savior. In his name we pray. Romans 8.34, who is the one... Who will condemn Christ, the one who died, and beyond that, who was raised up? Romans 4.25 says raised up because of our justification or for our justification. And who is at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf? Of course not. Of course, Christ wouldn't condemn. He's the one who died. The Father is the one who justified. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a divine person, subsisting and operating in an assumed human nature. In fact, that sort of describes him in a way. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a divine person, subsisting or existing and operating in an assumed Human nature, which he assumed by incarnation, exercised the passive role in our redemption during his passion. That's why they call it passion, a passive role, crucifixion, and death. He now exercises an active mediation in our so great salvation. We have in 1 Corinthians 1.18 the notion of being saved and the notion of perishing, both of which occur in time. Even though he has, of course, obtained for us eternal redemption. Romans 8.32 expresses the passive obedience of the Son when it says that God handed over his only Son, But this is not entirely the son's passivity, however, because in Titus 2.14, it says that Jesus handed himself over. There was a union of wills between the father and the human Christ. 
where the son was passive was when he was led like a sheep to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, 7. Led like a sheep to the slaughter. This will figure prominently in Romans 8.36 when it says that all we, like sheep, are killed all day long, led to the slaughter. That's a positive thing when you understand that we have been allowed the privilege of participating in the divine solution for the problem of historical evil. It's remarkable. Where the son was passive, and when we say passive, we still mean willingly and obediently, was when he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. This, of course, was the son's willing passivity. He was willingly being led, for he was given up. And that's the word used in Acts 2.23, a fascinating verse. Given up is the word ekdatos, ekdatos. And it means to be delivered up or given up. And it says he was given up by the decision. And the word there is bule, B-O-U-L-E. This is a very important word. We're going to see this come to the fore because it is a part of where we're going in Ephesians 1.11, boule, which English translation looks something like that, boule. So Acts 2.23, he was given up by the decision or the resolution and foreknowledge. There we have prognosis, P-R-O-G-N-O-S-I-S. Another word that's very important. By the prognosis of God. Again, Acts 2.23, he was given up by the decision or the resolution and the foreknowledge of God to be nailed to a cross. Very explicit, a graphic verb. And that word is pros, P-R-O-S, P-E-G, prospeg, numi, N-U-M-I. Pros peg numi means literally to be nailed to a cross and put to death by the hands of lawless men. Powerful sermon Peter's preaching there. And it says again, he was willingly being led because he was given up by the resolution and foreknowledge of God to be nailed to a cross and put to death by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23. It's by the boule, the counsel of God. This action by lawless men was decreed and decided by God before time as the very means of reconciling those very men. In fact, of reconciling all of the enemies of God reconciling all things in the heavens and on earth in him and gathering up in perfect order all things in Christ. God's intent and purpose, which was proposed before time, was mediated by Jesus Christ's crucifixion and death, which was followed by his inevitable resurrection from the dead. Acts 2.23 then is followed by Acts 2.24. Imagine that. In which Peter proclaims, but God raised him up, freeing him from the birth pangs of death, for it was not possible for death to hold him down. Paul, of course, put it this way, and we've referred to this a few times. He was handed over or delivered up for our offenses and raised up for our justification. God's pretemporal intent then was to sum up everything in Christ. God's redemption has an end or an objective and a means. The end is to sum up everything in his son 
so that God can be all in all. God all in all and his goodness being infused in all of the ordered universe is the ultimate end. The means for that is the death of his son and the resurrection of his son. So God's pre-temporal intent, the mystery of his will it's called in Ephesians 1.9, was to sum up everything, and that means bring everything in a, a new order, a universe with new order under the headship of Christ in Ephesians 1.10. And that resolve was to bring about, was to be brought about or executed by God's determination that his son be affixed to a cross by nails by the hands of wicked men and that he die. The resolve to sum up everything in Christ was executed in his son's execution that was brought about by human beings who were entirely hostile to God, godless and intractably sinful, impenitent, is how the religious people used to call it, impenitent. Men, just like all the sons of Adam, which is all of us in the Adamic ontology. Principalities and powers, the rulers of this age, says 1 Corinthians 2.8, and their human puppets had evil intentions in this crucifixion of Jesus, but God decreed it for the ultimate good. Genesis fifty twenty is where the principle is first found in the scripture. You meant it for evil, Joseph said to his brothers, whom he was reconciling with, whom he loved, whom he was forgiving, pardoning, and embracing. You meant it for evil when you sold me down the river into slavery. But God meant it for good that he may save many lives today, his saving intent, his ultimate good. God is always saving in his intent. He has no other intent but a salutary or saving intent for his creation. God's will is ever a saving will, patiently, persistently, and always a saving will. As Paul said in all of his epistles, the patience of our Lord is salvation. And because his patience is infinite, the salvation is universal. Second Peter 3.15 God's will is ever a saving will. The will that all the human race be saved and that all beings be reconciled to him, whether heavenly or earthly. And so God is... Great in his resolve, boule, his resolution to save. But he's also mighty in the saving. Christ gained our eternal redemption by a passive acquiescence to God's will, which was to save all humankind. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter because even in his passive acquiescence, he was actively obedient unto the death of the cross. But by this passive reception of the wages of sin, the Son gained satisfaction for all our sins, and he obtained eternal redemption, says Hebrews 9.12, for us all. Redemption is the Greek word lutrosin, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-N, lutrosin. L-U-T-R, Omega O-S-I-N. It means a ransoming or a releasing by the payment of a price. Paul put it this way. We have been bought, purchased, body, soul, and spirit. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, with a price. First Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23. In Romans 3.24, redemption is apo, apo, lutrosis, A-P-O, then this word, lutrosis, L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S, apo, lutrosis. 
And apolutrosis is an intensified form of this lutrosis or lutrosin. And it says, in fact, that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Huper panton. Huper panton. In 1 Timothy 2.6. Apolutrosis, then, a very much important word in the New Testament, carries with it nuances of meaning that include deliverance, buying back, acquittal, and ransoming. And so once again, the word ransom itself, used by Jesus, antilutron, A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N, antilutron, that word means ransom. And once again, it's used in 1 Timothy 2.6, where Paul echoes the very words of Jesus from Mark 10:45 and Matthew 20:28 20, the son of man has not come to be ministered to but to minister and to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that many equals all is in we are informed of that by 1 Timothy 2:6 the timothys are highly interpretive many equals all we find that also from Romans 5:18 to 19. Now, one of the most important things we've discovered in Romans the epistle is the equivalency of many, polon with all, panton, in Romans 5:18 to 19, where they're interchangeably used, many equals all. And we've also recognized that in Mark 10:45 along with Matthew 20:28, 20, giving his life as a ransom to buy back many is to give his life as a ransom to buy back all, as 1 Timothy 2.6. Please do that sometime on your own and read it. 1 Timothy 2.6, and then read Mark 10.45, and it's parallel in Matthew 20.28. And you'll see for yourselves that because there is no contradiction within the scriptural narrative, that many equals all. Then read Romans 5.18 to 19. I'm giving you this because this is equipping you for the work of ministry, for the work of testifying of the gospel, for the work of speaking to people about just what Jesus Christ accomplished and not being ignorant of it or just fighting without weaponry. This is weaponry. Huper Pantone. For all without exception. A ransom from, uh, for all is also interpretive. Timothy sheds light on Romans. The Timothys, the epistles to Timothy, are intended to be interpretive of Paul's epistles. All of Paul's epistles were occasional. And by that it means they were addressing a certain exigency or an emergency or a situation. So he never wrote any of them to develop any theology. You have to take all of Paul's epistles and derive a theology from them because, again, they were all occasional. On the occasion of a defection from the gospel of grace, Paul wrote Galatians. On an occasion of coming to Rome on his way through Spain, Paul wrote Romans. And he addressed a situation there where group biases had split up the church there into quarters that were fragmented and polarized. 1 Corinthians has an occasion. 2 Corinthians speaks of certain teachers that Paul combated. And he said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they this? So am I. And, and he had to fight against or argue against those that were ministers of Satan and angels of light. Occasions. Ephesians is written on the occasion of an assembly of pagans coming suddenly into Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so he writes about these things and they're all on an occasion. So you have to see that he occasionally develops some theology. So you have to take, to develop a theology, you have to take all the epistles of Paul that are occasional and develop a theology from it. And when you do, it's beyond your comprehension. It's unbelievably glorious. That's one of the directions I'm taking next. So these words will be tracks that will be established for future theological studies that we'll do right here. We're not going to just 
teach theology. We're going to do it and live it. So a ransom for all is interpretive of Romans 3.24, where the all who have sinned in Romans 3.23 are justified freely by grace through the redemption, apolutrosis, that is in Christ Jesus. There again, the word redemption is apolutrosis, and the accent actually falls here, apolutrosis, where it is also used in Romans 8.23. 1 Corinthians one thirty, Ephesians one seven, one fourteen, four thirty, Colossians one fourteen, and Hebrews nine fifteen. It's a significant word, apolutrosis. It's another A word that we're going to use when we develop the instauration, anakephaliosis, summing up of all things under the headship of Christ. Or another familiar one, apocatastasis. A words. There are several of them. Since all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in and by Christ Jesus, then redemption is, like reconciliation, universal. That is, it's for all who have sinned. It isn't for all who believe. It's for all who have sinned, according to Romans 3, 23 and 24. That qualifies everybody, doesn't it? You're qualified for redemption by being a sinner. I hope you can handle that. And so, for all who have sinned, there is redemption. All who have sinned is all the sins of, all the sons, rather, of Adam, whom Yahweh surveyed. Another important thing we've derived from Romans the epistle. Yahweh, the Lord God, surveyed all of humanity in all of its times in a simultaneous moment. And he found universal sinfulness among all the sons of Adam. Universal sinfulness. Universal hostility against him. Universal ungodliness. So Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. And that means intractable and impenitent. Impenitent. Christ died. And while we were his enemies, God reconciled us to himself while we were enemies. And he made us alive in Christ Jesus while we were dead. And trespasses and sins. You get the idea. It's all about God's action. God's resolution is great, but his action is even mighty and powerful in bringing about. His intent is salvation, and he's mighty to save. I'm persuaded. I don't want to just express my persuasiveness or my persuasion. I want to communicate it to other people. I want it to be your own persuasion, but I want Jesus Christ himself to persuade you so that you'll have confidence and you'll be fully armed for the combat in the agona, the arena of the class of the ages. So, there again, Romans 3.24, apolutrosis. Apolutrosis belongs alongside apocatastasis, which is the restoration of panton, all things, anakephaliosis, and reconciliation of all things, tapanta, in Colossians 1.20. All of these are descriptors of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. And... They describe the universally salutary or saving impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have reached Romans 8.35. Who or what? Who or what? Will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Sunday morning we, ha- we hit on this and that message, a rough transcript or a roughly edited written part for that message is out on the out on the information table. So I'm kind of re-ironing the same garment here, but Romans 8:35 Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution or war? These are all things that God's people experience incidentally in the agona, in the clashing of the ages. The emphatic answer, no, no, 
no one and nobody will separate us. And then it says, will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? No. But no is delayed. You got Romans 8.36 first. Some people put it, and I think rightly, in a parenthesis. But it doesn't mean it's not important. It means it's extremely important. All we like sheep are led to the slaughter all day long. We're killed all day long. And so... We experience tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, war, and a few other things are arrayed against us. But we have to wait for the answer, the no answer, until 837. The emphatic negative answer, no, is delayed until after a parenthetical verse in which we have a description of adversity university in which we are all enrolled in Romans 836. But no, N-O, exclamation point, is all the more emphatic after a short delay. A delay that may seem to us to be all day long. Any so-called Christian movement or doctrine of any kind which says that the experiences of tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war are evidence of separation from the love of God and the love of Christ is to be considered an anathema. So much for at least 90% of what is called the prosperity gospel. Because the flip side of the prosperity gospel is God doesn't will you to have adversity. And if you do have it, you're out of favor with God. You lack faith. You lack something. That's a demonic doctrine. It's anathema. You should separate yourself from it because that doctrine is separated from truth. So, Evidently, the opponent of Paul and Paul's gospel considered that these things are somehow proof of God's disfavor and that they have the power to separate those whom God has justified from the love of Christ. Of course, they fail to recognize that God loves us with the same love that he loves his son. As he says in John 17, 23. So, such a notion, however, that these things have the power to separate those whom God has justified from the love of Christ, such a notion has been separated from the truth that is embodied in Jesus. In Romans eight thirty-five to 39, then Paul returns to the theme of the agona, which we've introduced before. In fact, spent a lot of time on it with Philippians back at the farm, I think. It describes an arena of contention which is the clash of the ages in which all believers are urged and commanded to be armed with the armor of light in Romans 13, 11 to 12. The full armor from God, Ephesians 6, 11 to 18. All the things that the apostle lists, therefore, in 835b, the second part of 835, tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution and war and all the things he mentions in verse 38 death life angels demons things in the present things about to be powers above powers below and anything in the realm of this presently evilly affected creation are all things that appear to be arrayed against us and threaten to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But they have all been stripped utterly of their ability to do so. You'll notice here, there are several distinctions that we'll have to do before we finish Romans and then carry on. 
There's a lot of things I haven't developed. Frustratingly, I have not developed some of the things we've hit in Romans to the point where I want to. So that's why I'm taking a theological bent in order to develop more thoroughly some of these concepts. But you'll notice that in Romans 8, 38 and 39, some of the things listed here, he talks about angels and demons as separate from powers or principalities and powers. Angels, demons, separate from principalities and powers. So there's a, a, a kind of a differentiation of consciousness that we have to realize. He also doesn't say any other created thing. He says anything in creation. And he distinguishes that from death, which isn't a part of creation, and from other certain evils that are not part of creation per se. And so there's distinctions here that we fail to recognize sometimes. But the point is, all the listed things that appear to be arrayed against us and threatened to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus have been stripped utterly of their ability to do so. And they've been stripped by the victory that Jesus Christ won over the world. And that's the word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S. John uses the word cosmos, and I'm glad we went with John for a while, for a few years before we went to Paul. John uses the word cosmos in a negative sense in John 16.33. He uses it not to describe the universe or the world of humanity in all of its times, which sometimes is the word cosmos means, but he uses it for the system of this world, the contents of which are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life none of which has anything to do with the love of God the Father, and they're all antagonistic to him, 1 John 2, 16 and 17. So this is the world, the representatives of which were the religious leaders in Jerusalem and the political power of Rome, Judas Iscariot, and even the crowd under the powerful sway of evil who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. So when John uses the word cosmos in a positive sense as in the universe or the entirety of the human race he speaks of the world being saved interestingly John 3 17 God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world that's all of humanity and all of its times and the universe of proportionate being but to save the world that through him the world would be saved John 4.42, the whole town of Sychar in Samaria came out to the woman at the well and said, we don't need your testimony anymore because we heard him ourselves and we've come to realize that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world, cosmos. 1 John 4.14 speaks of him as the Savior of the world. So when he speaks of the system of this world as opposed to God and to the human race, he speaks of a conquering of the world. He speaks of conquering the world. When he speaks of it in the sense of the world of humankind itself or per se or in, it, in its totality and the universe in its totality, he speaks of it as being saved. So this conquest of evil as it was and is systematized in the cosmos was not accomplished by power. This conquest of evil by Jesus was not accomplished by power or by force, but by the just and mysterious law of the cross. Something we're headed toward trying to understand. That law is not power in that sense. The law, the just and mysterious law of the cross, is not power in the sense of force or a power of retaliation. Now, this is going to go against the grain of a lot of Christians whose favorite movies are revenge flicks based on revenge fantasies because it's quite the opposite. The world, the earth of the new, the new earth is not going to be inherited by the power players of this world, but by the meek. And that means the non-retaliating who endure these sufferings with patience and overcome the evil by the ultimate good. The goodness of God infused in them. 
And that means they're led to the slaughter all day long, it seems. But they're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this has got to take it. This is taking out a lot of stuff that especially in macho males. It's not a lion tearing a lion tearing apart the oppressors. It isn't Josie Wales shoving a saber up someone's gullet. It isn't revenge. It isn't all, there's so many. Re, they're the funnest movies to watch because you go, yeah, at the end. But God doesn't through the mysterious law of the cross, he doesn't destroy evil by force. He actually transforms evil into a supreme good, way beyond, way beyond Christian expectation. The Jews didn't expect such a Messiah, but Christians don't expect such a redemption and such a thing happening at the cross. Our expectations are just as flawed as the Jewish expectation for a savior who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would tear their oppressors to pieces. But he comes as a lamb that had been slaughtered. And yet he's standing because he wasn't only delivered over to take away the sin of the world, but he took his life back again. And with the life of his own that he took back again, he took back the life of all of humanity that had been stolen by sin and the fear of death. So when John uses the word cosmos as the system of this world is opposed to God and the human race, the features of which are found in Romans 8, 35 and 38 and 39, he speaks of the conquest of this world. This conquest of evil, again, as it's been systematized in the cosmos and finds its most evil expression in religions, was not accomplished by power or by force, but by the just and mysterious law of the cross, which is not power in the sense of force or retaliation. It is power. But it is the creative power of grace. For that's what Jesus was speaking of in an apocalyptic sense when he said, I have overcome the world. Well, it sure as hell doesn't look like it when you're led like a lamb to the slaughter, beaten, abused, tortured, whipped with cat of nine tails 39 times plus one across your back and nailed to a cross by lawless men. Of course, it doesn't look that way. But he overcame evil and did away with it, not by the power of force of arms, but by transforming it into a supreme good. There's more on this in the, out, in the doctrine sheet out on the tape desk. So this was entirely contrary to the messianic expectations of most of the Jews who anticipated a lion tearing apart the evil oppressors that held them, but who never anticipated the super victory, super victory, I said, of a lamb who was willingly led to the slaughter. This makes Jesus not just a conqueror, but a super conqueror. This is why I'm so almost infinitely bored with superheroes and superhero movies and Avengers and this and that and because the whole thing is such a boring thing compared to the true super victor. Only once in the scripture is the word hooper locked in with nikao to show a super victory over evil. Superheroes are just one form of evil against some other form of evil that it seems to overcome with no acknowledgement of the supreme being or of God at all. None. All the glory goes to whatever or whoever. So, Jesus became a super 
victor, a super conqueror, in that his conquest was not just a victory over his enemies, but a victory in which his enemies were made his friends. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.19. What does it mean to be reconciled? What does it mean when Jacob sees the face of Esau, whom he thinks is going to kill him and out of vengeance, and yet instead he sees in Esau, who comes to embrace him, the very face of Yahweh? Because when it comes to the human race per se and in total, the whole of the human race, we were all arrayed against him as his enemies. When God surveyed the whole of the human race all at once, he not only saw us as godless or ungodly and incapable of extracting ourselves from this desperate plight, he saw us also as hostile to him, even in our religious piety especially in our religious piety. And he saw us. That's why it's, it's like you could picture God calling out, is there a human being that can extract humanity from this plight? And there wasn't one, so God became one. He became a divine person with an assumed human nature named Jesus, who saved the world. Not by power, not by might, but by offering himself through the eternal spirit to God as not only the priest, but the lamb offered. His conquest wasn't a victory over his enemies, but a victory in which his enemies became his friends. For when it came to the human race, we were all arrayed against him as his enemies under sin. But he reconciled us while we were enemies to him. Reconciled means made friends, Romans 5.10. Jesus merited that salvation for us, that reconciliation. He reconciled us while we were enemies to him, even as in Ephesians 2.5, it says God made us alive in Christ while we were dead in sins. He justified or set us right by the blood of his son, the son whom he so dearly loves. Romans 5.9, Colossians 1.13 and 1.20, Matthew 3.17. And by so much more, are we saved from wrath by his resurrection? Romans 4.25 and 5.10. Jesus merited our so great salvation by his meritorious obedience in Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 5.8-9, Romans 5.19, Philippians 2.8. He was obedient to the command of his father by which he was to lay his life down for us and then take it up again. Romans 4.25 and John 10.17 come together here. When he takes up his life again in resurrection, he does it for himself in one sense. He takes up, I take up my life again. He takes it for himself, but for the world. He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. My flesh is bread to feed the whole world in John 6.51. So God didn't send his son so that, the world would be condemned, hostile enemies be damned, but so that the world would be saved. Contrary then to much Christian expectation, talk all day long you want about Jewish expectations that were defied in the coming of Christ. Contrary to much Christian expectation, the just and mysterious law of the cross even overcomes the evil of final impenitence. Someone Hard-hearted until death. He overcame that evil too, and he transformed it into the ultimate good. I'll say it again. Contrary to much Christian expectation, however, 
The just and mysterious law of the cross even overcomes the evil of final impenitence on the part of both men and angels. You heard me. Jesus overcame the world by a supreme good. Jesus refers in John 16.33 to the overcoming of evil by the supreme good, even the divine good. In this world, you will have tribulation. Don't say tribulation isn't had by people whom God favors. Tribulation is the gift of God to those whom he favors. Neither say you're not in God's will if you're experiencing trouble. In fact, it's normal to be in Christ Jesus and in trouble at the same time. Many people say, well, I've never been in any kind of adversity like that. That's because you're not in the agona. You're not progressing in the spiritual life. You're admitting it by your lack of adversity. Some people even get delusions of immortality. Now, Jesus merited our so great salvation. Contrary to much Christian expectation, the just and mysterious law of the cross even overcomes the evil of what Christians like to call final impenitence. Intractable unrepentance on the part of both men and angels. So in John 16, 33, he says, he makes a promise. Here's a promise. How do you like this promise? Claim it. Name it and claim it. In this world, you will have tribulation. I name it and claim it. But he backs up. Then he makes a better promise. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The source of that tribulation. I have overcome the world. He overcame evil and did away with it. Not by the power or the force of arms. But by the just and mysterious law of the cross. That's why in Romans twelve twenty one, The scripture says don't be overcome by evil. But overcome evil. By good, a supreme good, even a divine good. In John 16.33, Jesus uses the verb overcome. Nikao is the word, N-I-K-A-O. Nikao. Paul uses that same word, Romans 12.21, twice Nikao, don't be overcome, Nikao, conquered by the evil, but rather conquer the evil, not by force of arms or by taking up arms, but by the good, even the supreme good, even the divine good, agathos, the divine good that's infused in you. And then in Romans 8.37, where we're going, the word huper Nikao, a word that means super conquerors, only used once in Romans, in fact, only used once in all of Scripture, found in Romans 8.37. It refers to believers who not only are not overcome by the evils associated with this world, but by their overcoming of these evils by the divine goodness first manifested through Jesus, a divine person operating in a human nature, then expressed through humans operating through the divine spirit. The goodness that has transformed evils into a supreme good. So we become hyper conquerors. The real Jedi warriors. When we participate in the love of God in Christ toward our enemies. May the just and mysterious law of the cross be with you. We participate, therefore, in the love of God in Christ toward our enemies. That's the way of the cross. 
We participate in the solution for the problem of evil in history when we allow the love of God to be poured out into our hearts and demonstrated with patient continuity. And that's the important part. Love is patient. The earth is not inherited by the power players of this age or by those who attempt to defeat what they perceive as evils by the force of violence. No, the gentle and the non-retaliating will inherit the earth. as joint heirs with Christ, the Lamb of God. You say, I don't like that. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to like it. It's true. My whole 47 years as a person who was awakened to faith has been a long, grueling session of being conformed to that reality because it's so contrary to my nature in Adam. We are in an arena of contention because God has invaded this evil age by two divine missions, which I like to call expeditions. Xenophon wrote that famous book, well worth reading in an English translation, called Anabasis. It was about a, an expedition of... Greek armies that failed and how they had to go all the way across 10,000 of them, how they had to go across most of the world in the wilderness of the world led by an unlikely leader named Xenophon. Anabasis means expedition. But we are in an infinitely greater sphere than the Agona. Always remember, we are in this Agona. But we are also in an infinitely greater sphere, wider, higher, broader, deeper, because we died and our lives are hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3, 3. we are in the sphere of the love of Christ Jesus, which is in the love of God, both of which were demonstrated at their peak while we were yet sinners, intractably sinful, ungodly, and God's enemies. That's when Christ died. Romans 5, 6 through 10. So it seems that we can be in trouble and in Christ Jesus at the same time. In fact, Jesus said again to his closest followers, in this world you will have tribulation. Every demonstration of benevolence and beneficence by the fruit of the Spirit meets with opposition in this evil age. Every message you speak meets with opposition in this age. Every conversation you have in Christ is opposed by this evil age. Every advance you make in Christ is fought against by this evil age. So take up and put on the full armor from God. In this world, you will have thlipsis, tribulation. But he followed up on that promise with another promise that overwhelms the first. We could say that even more than conquerors, the first promise. In this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Have high morale, the highest of possible morale, because I have overcome this world. The man Christ Jesus, a divine person subsisting and operating in an assumed human nature, overcame the world by a supreme good. In John 16, Jesus refers to the overcoming of evil. 
by the supreme good, which is even the divine good. Once again, in Romans 12, 21, Paul commands, don't be overcome by evil, nikao, but overcome evil, nikao, by the good. And there he uses that same word twice for overcome that Jesus used in John 16.33, nikao. In Romans, the epistle that we've been engaged in now, and I think this is, I don't know how many hours, 143, the illuminated and inspired apostle, Paul, precedes the description of our adversity. with the assurance of our inseparability from the love of Christ. I'll say it again. Romans, the epistle, the illuminated and inspired apostle. For the two actions of the Holy Spirit in us are illumination and inspiration. He precedes the description of our adversity with the absolute assurance of our inseparability from the love of Christ. Furthermore, He ends Romans 8 with his own immovable persuasion that nothing that we encounter during this clash of the ages, this clashing juncture of the eons, has the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul does not only intend to express that persuasion, but to communicate it to make it a communicable persuasion to the listeners, including us tonight. I have been persuaded, and I think by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, I'm speaking for myself, of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, a divine person who assumed a human nature and became the mediator between God and all of mankind and who gave himself as a ransom for all. I believe in this universally savingly significant person, Jesus Christ, a divine person with an assumed human nature. I believe in the universally saving impact of his crucifixion, death and resurrection. I'm firmly persuaded of this. I'm not what you call a hopeful universalist. I'm a persuaded, I don't want to even say universalist, I'm absolutely persuaded of the redemption that's universal, of a reconciliation that's universal, and of a plan by God the Father to sum up all things in all of its times in Christ. I am firmly persuaded of this. And yet, I don't want to just stand up here and tell you how persuaded I am. I want to communicate my persuasion to you. And I can't do that. But if the Lord Jesus Christ has persuaded me, and I believe that he has, and I believe that he persuaded me in a certain moment in January of 1972, because I saw it all then in a flash. I knew it all then in a moment but I had to fight for 47 years to realize it as I know it now. But my intention is that the the Lord, through the messages I'm preaching, would persuade you and give you that same confidence and arm you with that same shield of faith. Oh, I'm persuaded. And there's no going back on this persuasion. There's no going back on this absolute confidence. There's no going back on what Nathaniel Brandon called, and he was an atheist, cognitive invincibility. You have no idea what that means, Nathaniel. A student of Ayn Rand who wrote Atlas Shrugged, Nathaniel Brandon. Cognitive invincibility is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul. And that's been communicated, not just expressed, but communicated. His intention is to communicate this to the Roman saints and to break down the walls that partition them from one another and polarize them from each other. And so we expect opposition. 
But we know that opposition of all kinds has been stripped of its ability. In fact, the evil called death, which has no subsistence or creation in itself, has been transformed into the ultimate good. So as my mother used to say, what are they going to do to you? Meaning, keep on. What are they going to do to you? What are they, and by they, I would say, all the things in Romans 8, 35 and 39. Death being the biggest, most threatening, loud-mouthed Goliath. What can death do except, now that it's been transformed into the ultimate good, deliver me into the presence of my Savior? So, you can wait for the rapture. I'd rather be delivered unto death. I'd rather spend my life the whole gamut until the very end, until the very death rattle in my Savior, Jesus Christ, and then see him face to face. Now, it's true when he comes, there's going to be a whole bunch of millions and millions, maybe billions of people that are going to be transformed from this physical mortal body right into an immortal body without seeing death. That's true, but I don't care, really. That's okay. You can have it. I think I'd rather die. That's just my, I'm not going to communicate that desire to you. In fact, I wish sometimes that would happen soon. But like Paul, I'm in a dilemma. Whether to part and be from be with Christ, which is infinitely better than anything on this planet, or to stay with you. And Paul even said, because I think you need me. But I won't say that. You don't need me. But I do think I want to stay around for a while because of you. Amen. Thank you, Father.